Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is December the 1st, 2016, and this is episode 1908 of the Survival Podcast. Um, it is a Thursday, that means we have a listener call-in show. This is where you call the Think Line, 866-65-THINK, 866 65-T-H-I-N-K. Or if you have a microphone on your computer, or you can do it on your smartphone through your smartphone's browser, you can just go to survivalpodcast.com, look in the uh, column, and you'll see the center column has a thing called the SpeakPipe tool. You can click that button, put in your uh, information, and then record uh, a message for me, and that'll come to me by email. We have both calls and speak pipes on today's lineup. What are we going to talk about today? Well, first of all, one of the Zello uh, moderators has called in with a Zello primer. So this is how you get on Zello and then how you get on the TSP channel and how to do it without getting banned before you get started uh, because of just a simple misunderstanding. And I'll give you a few quick thoughts after you hear her on why they do things the way they do them because you might be like, why do they do all this? There's a reason. Uh, we have an important survival lesson about hospitals and emergencies, one that I think might save lives. And I'll just throw out an initial thank you to uh, Jason from PA for calling this one in, because it may, in fact, save somebody's life or improve somebody's life quality in the long run. I have a question. The fall of Rome, is that the future of the U.S.? My response is no. Here's why, but you'll have to wait to hear why. We have the eye-dominance question yet again, this time for a kiddo. The answer will never change, but I will try to help you with the heart of the question. Uh, thoughts on transitioning from the military to oh, the eye dominance? That's, that's shooting, for those that didn't know. Anyway, thoughts on transitioning from the military to civilian life? We'll have uh, some thoughts on that. We'll have, we have a new rule. No more taunting the Harris, as in the Stephen Harris. No more taunting the Harris, except this time. Just I'll play the caller stuff just for fun, because it's clearly in good fun. We also have a question on using cedar mulch. No, it won't kill your plants. I don't care what they say. Cedar mulch won't kill your vegetables. Well, it might, but, well, you'll have to wait to hear exactly why it might. It's not because of why you think, and it's probably not going to happen unless you do something you shouldn't do. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, thoughts on eating meat of suburban game. That does not mean long pig. You'll have to look that up if you don't know what it is. But, uh, no, we're talking about things like raccoons. If you, you know, you harvest game in the suburbs that might have been feeding on garbage, what do you, what do you think about eating the meat? I'll give you some thoughts on that. And what are the effects on the over-medication of America in general, not just ADD meds? And we will uh, tackle all of that today. Before we do, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1908 because the episode's 1908. I have the Tagunsta Blast. It's real. And I have Scouting for Boys. Uh, we will talk about Scouting for Boys in just a second. I'll give you some notable births first. Edward Teller, inventor of the hydrogen bomb, was born this year. He's tired of just using an atom bomb. Estee Lauder, the queen of cosmetics, she'll be listed as one of the top 20 business geniuses of the 20th century. And John Galbraith, economist under FDR, who said, faced with the choice between changing one's mind and proving there is no need to do so, almost everybody gets busy on the proof, end quote, according to Milton Friedman, that includes John. And in other news, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid are killed in a shootout. Probably. Their bodies are never positively identified. 
And this year, the Ford Model T is a big hit. Also known as the Tin Lizzie, it's the first affordable car for the middle class. And Bakelite is invented. The age of plastics is here. It all began in Yonkers, New York. Uh, let's read Scouting for Boys. Uh, the Sagunsta Blast is really cool. I wanted to read it. I think most people are at least familiar with the concept. Giant blast over Siberia. Millions of trees flattened out. Nobody's really sure. We think it was a meteor. Interesting one to read if you want to go to tspwiki.com and look at the uh, the page for 1908. But I'm going to read Scouting for Boys because I, I have some, some takes on this myself. Scouting for Boys. No, this is not a dating manual for girls. A series of magazine articles on woodland tracking skills, urban survival tips, and general self-improvement have been published in book form by Robert Baden-Powell. The book is a bestseller right out of the chute. You are seeing the beginning of the Boy Scout movement. Many hail this book as a new vision in education, but the author's only intent is to teach self-reliance. In these days, children are educated to how to follow the herd. And in military service, young men are trained to follow orders without question or initiative. But Baden-Powell remarks, quote, If their officer was shot, they were as helpless as a flock of sheep. Tell one of them to ride out alone with a message on a dark night, and ten to one he would lose his way, end quote. While Baden-Powell agrees the formal education is valuable and discipline is a requirement in the military, scouting makes a boy into a well-rounded, dependable individual. The book Scouting for Boys will remain a bestseller for decades to come. And he also said this, As a matter of fact, I didn't actually start the Boy Scout movement because the blooming thing started itself unseen. Robert Baden-Powell in a 1937 interview by Listener Magazine My take by Alex Shrugged. I'm a volunteer chaplain at Travis County Jail, Texas. A few hours ago, I met with a prisoner. I'll call him John. John had read the books I had suggested, and he had some questions. We drifted into talk about how dismal the condition our educational system is. The jail provides an educational services on the theory that a man or a woman is committing crimes because he has no skills. Besides reading, writing, and arithmetic, they teach how to open a joint checking account, cook a meal, and find a job. It sounds odd, but John couldn't believe that he had never been taught these basic skills. I'm not blaming the school system for leading John into a life of crime, but it might have helped if John knew how to cook a meal rather than buy one at three times the price. I can't wait until next week when I tell him the food just falls out of the backside of a chicken. Won't he be surprised? Indeed, and I think that, you know, I've been hard on the Boy Scouts of America. I've never been hard on scouting. I love the concept of scouting for teaching young boys and with the Girl Scouts young girls. You know, initiative, teamwork, independent thought, survival skills, life skills. I love it. I found Boy Scouts of America to become just ridiculous with some of its rules and basically falling into the pussification of America. But I love the idea of it. But I don't know that we need scouts so much as we need men teaching young men how to be men. I think that's what we're really lacking today. And I, I think part of the reason that scouting came about is a problem that we don't think of, you know, in 1908, uh, that we still have today. And that is, you know, we think, well, the family unit was stronger in, in the early 1900s. There was less divorce and all. That's true. But the woman stayed home took care of the house. This is not everybody, but in general, right? And the man went out and worked. And men at the time, especially blue-collar men, worked exceedingly long hours. 60-hour week would be a typical. You, you, you get home and you're just beat. I mean, this is the days, you know, the Model T just came out. 
So you might have been riding a horse or, or, or taking a buggy or, or walking to work uh, or who knows what else, uh, maybe taking a train, and you get home and you're just beat and your father lived that way. And unless you were a farmer where a lot of this stuff gets tough, because you want to know how to engineer something, talk to a farmer. Because farmers fix all kinds of things they just have to. If you were in the, the working man world, you know, working a job rather than tending a farm, you just didn't have time. And I think there's a lot of problems with that today that men, even in intact families, they don't, they don't take the time. I won't say they don't have the time. They don't take the time because they're tired and they're stressed to actually teach young people. But I think what's worse today is we're afraid that we're going to break them or hurt them or hurt their feelings. And we're afraid to let them even be uncomfortable. And let me tell you, when you do scouting right, kids are uncomfortable. Kids are uncomfortable. I remember my son was in scouts, and uh, I was traveling, so I didn't get involved as like doing the scoutmaster thing or anything like that because I was always gone. And I just didn't think it was fair to the kids for them to depend on me and for me 90% of the time to not be there. But um, they had a, a camp out to do out of this big, huge Boy Scout camp out on the Brazos River. And, you know, one of the other scout master guys or whatever couldn't go for whatever reason and they only had one guy that could go for the whole thing and one guy it was like a five day or six day camp out and the other guy could go like half the time so they're like well will you come do like the last three days because it doesn't matter whether you we just need two adults to chaperone or they can't go i'm like well i don't want them to not, not go so I'm out there, and basically I fished in the river the entire time and then hung out with the kids when they were, you know, at downtime and stuff like that because uh, I was just there so they could be there. And uh, they were doing all their stuff that I knew nothing about because I wasn't part of it. And I got to tell you, these kids were 11 years old. Every single one of them cried before it was over with at night because they missed their family. They were gone for less than a week. And I'm just thinking... I, I I had no frame of reference. I didn't even really know how to be useful in kind of getting them through it. But we've made our we've made our our, our men soft, and our soft men are making softer boys. And it, it really is a time in history where we need to start toughening up, not just our kids, because you can't blame the kids for the kids being weak. Genetically, they're the same kids that they've always been. They're the same kids we were. They're the same kids our parents were. It's it's this generation of parents uh, that are the problem, and it's it's I, I don't really know how to fix it, but toughen your kids up, folks. Let them be uncomfortable once in a while. It's okay. They'll get over it, and maybe they won't need a guy like Alex to be a volunteer chaplain for them uh, as an adult because they don't know how to take care of themselves or deal with problems or adversity. I'm just saying, my take by Jack Spierko. Uh, next up, before we get into your calls, let's uh, hear from our two sponsors of the day, and we'll roll right from there into our first call. Well, we won't because I want to kind of introduce that one. So let's go ahead and just hear from our two sponsors of the day. And, of course, just to make sure, those that maybe don't know, Zello is an app you can put on your computer or on your smartphone. And it makes your phone into like a push-to-talk radio. You hold down a button, it goes cheap, cheap. You can talk to somebody on the other side. It's it's basically a one a uni, uh, unidirectional two-way communication. You have communication from both sides, but only one side can talk at a time. So that's what it is, and now you're going to hear a little bit more about it. Hey, Jack. This is Oxymoron, uh, one of the Zello mods again, um, trying one more time to... 
give you some, give your listeners some pro tips on, on how to effectively join the Zello channel. Um, once you've downloaded the app and started it, you will need to select a username. Uh, first of all, your username should not violate your personal security. If you don't want us to know that your name is Bob Smith and you live in Cincinnati, you shouldn't include Bob Smith or Cincinnati in your username. Um, be aware that if you choose a silly username, this is what we are going to call you. Um, and, and if you're fine with that, that's totally fine, but consider maybe not choosing a silly username. Consider the pronounceability of your username. Um, that username you chose in 2003, that first time you got on a forum, if I have a hard time saying it, we're going to have a hard time communicating. Um, and the number of people who have come onto the channel in the past with a wholly unpronounceable username that makes perfect sense in text but nobody can say and have to start a second account is high. Um, if you live in Kentucky, um, while we, we love you and we appreciate that you that you um, want to show your Kentucky pride, um, understand that some of us have an inner middle schooler that likes to giggle. Um, and if you include Kentucky in your username, it's KY. Um, we will giggle at you. It's nothing personal, but it will happen. Um, so once you have joined Zello and created your username, you can there's a there's a bar at the top with um, recent contacts and channels. If you click on contacts, everybody has a contact named Echo. You can go talk to Echo, and Echo will allow you to test your audio settings. So can anybody hear me? Well, you key up and talk to Echo. You key up by pressing the big yellow orange button in the middle, um, and you talk to Echo, and Echo will immediately, when you key off, um, repeat back to you what you said. I'd like to say I know you are, but what am I? Um, but you can check and make sure that your speaker and your microphone are working properly by talking to Echo. You then click on channels, and then you you know search for channels. We are the Survival Podcast Network. Four words: the Survival Podcast Network. You can find us, and when you get there, um, you will come in as an untrusted user. As an untrusted user, you most of the time can't hear what's going on, and nobody can hear you but the moderators. So you need to one more time. Press that big yellow-orange button in the middle and say hello. Talk to a moderator. It might even be me. Um, so thanks for all you do, Jack. Um, thanks to, to the TSP community for being awesome. Um, and come on over and see us on Zello sometime. Uh, oh, and one more thing about language. Um, it's not just about the kids. Um, some of us work straight jobs. Um, some of us are in the grocery stores talking on Zello. Um, and like having a stream of profanity come out of your pocket while you're in the hardware store is kind of socially unacceptable. Um, so while, yes, some of us have children, um, some people just don't want to hear the language. Some people don't want their surroundings um, to, to have to hear the language and to get dirty looks about them. But we talk about all manner of subjects, um, from the silly to the adult. Um, so while, while the language we may try to, try to keep PG, um, the content totally doesn't stay there at all even a little bit. So, yeah, come on over to Zello and join us. Have a good time. We like to have a good time. Um, we get a little silly. We get a little weird. Um, but we're pretty awesome. Thanks for all you do, Jack. Okay, so I, I want to real quick just add on to that um, what, what this whole untrusted user thing is about and why they do things the way that they do them. So as Oxymoron said, when, when you get on there, you find the group and you join it at first, no one can hear anything you're saying except the moderators. And it is possible that there might not be a moderator on there at the time that you particularly ch to tune in and to sign up. What will often happen, <clears throat> if you're just there kind of lurking, is the moderators will reach out to you and try to get you to talk to them. And if you don't do it for long enough, they'll nuke you and get rid of you. 
you might say, well, this all doesn't sound very welcoming. There's a reason. The TSP Zello group is, if not the, one of the most popular, most active groups on Zello. It's, it's the big leagues for the world of Zello. So much so that, that members of, of Zello's uh, development team have had conferences with uh, our moderators and active users to find out how to make the service better. Okay, I mean, that's, that's how big we are. In any social media world, and this is basically a form of social media, it's just in the form of like radio-like communications, a big group is going to attract trolls and spammers. And Zello's no different. And they were getting inundated with jerks and jackasses getting on there, doing the, like the Baba Booey thing and stuff like that, uh, and just, just being obnoxious or just start rolling off in some foreign language and you can't stop them and whatever. So... What they did is they initiated this protocol where only a, a, a moderator can hear you at first, and they just basically verify you're actually a person that knows why you're there and wants to come hang out, and you're aware of the basic rules of etiquette, and then they just turn it on and let you in. And as long as you then do what you're supposed to do from that point on and don't you know get vulgar and curse or uh, become obnoxious or something like that, then you get to stay on or start you know doing the bottle buoy thing or whatever. You get to stay on, and it's all fun and games and, and great. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a fine thing. So I just wanted to kind of throw out and add to uh, the call there as to why they do that. It's sad that we have to do things like that. It's sad that, for instance, the Survival Podcast Facebook group now that you can join by going to the Survival Podcast and click on the Facebook icon. And we do have my Facebook page. It has over 100,000 members. It's been there for eight years. But... Last year, we decided let's create a user forum on Facebook where it's not just me posting stuff and answering you like everybody can post. And that only has about three or 4,000 members. Well, it would grow a lot faster if it was an open group where people could see what's in there without joining it. But we had so much problem with trolls and jackasses that we made it a closed group. You have to join it and you have to be approved before you can even see anything. And that stopped the problem. It slows the growth but stops the problem and gives the members a better experience. So if you're a Facebook user and you're on my main page but you're not in the forum, consider joining the Survival Podcast Facebook forum and understand the same thing. You'll, you'll request membership and it'll take a day or two before one of the moderators will approve you and let you in. And I post to both, but there's a lot more two-way conversations in the group than on the main page because of the way Facebook runs things. I would let people post shit to the page, but... Facebook pages don't work that way, and I didn't know that when I set it up years and years ago, or I would have put all my effort into building it as a group in the first place. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take the next call. This one is also a call that I don't have a lot to add to because it's so well done. Uh, I believe it's Jason in PA here, and he's going to tell us about some survival rules that apply to having to go to the hospital, and I mean, seriously, survival rules. Hi, Jack. Uh, this weekend, I learned a survival technique that I was unaware of. It turns out my father-in-law's mother had a stroke Thanksgiving night. They called 911. You know, it sounds like the thing you're supposed to do. They rushed her to the hospital, but apparently 911 is obligated to bring you to the nearest hospital. And when it comes to strokes, that can make a difference between perfect survival and death. The hospital she was brought to was a standard hospital. Had she brought, been brought a little farther to, say, Hopkins or one of the other uh, tier hospitals, she would have gained uh, the benefit of intravascular uh, treatment. 
and within 20 minutes they would have had the blood clot removed in her speaking. Instead, the hospital she was brought to resulted in her left brain completely being destroyed. Um, it's something we don't think about. So I would put into a survival plan, A, find out what your local hospitals are, which ones offer the advanced treatments, B, when you travel, do the same thing. If you're going to a state for a vacation, find out what hospitals have the advanced treatments, and also be aware that if you dial 911, they're going to bring you to the nearest hospital, and that it may be better for you to pretty much bring your loved one to that higher tier hospital than to let 911 bring them to a hospital that is not going to be able to provide adequate treatment. Uh, many hospitals, local hospitals, don't have uh, in stroke intensive units and other intensive units. They don't have the latest technology where they can actually just go through arteries to remove clots. So it's not something I ever really considered until uh, talking with my father-in-law, um, but it may be something to look and add into your preps. Uh, you have loved ones. You want them to have the treatment that will save their lives and let them be able to continue walking and talking, not the treatment that's going to leave them in a vegetative state. In many instances, you're better off, no matter which hospital you're going to, putting the person, if you can, if you're, you're there to drive, put the person in the car and you drive. Uh, maybe bend a few traffic laws, turn the, the, the four ways on, what have you, and, and, and get them there. But this is always a, a gamble. I mean, you have somebody that's in the middle of cardiac arrest, and you know that the, you know, the paramedics are in the fire station that's, you know, uh, two blocks down the street, and their response time's good and, and whatever, and the other person may be dying in the car on the way to the hospital. Or you, in the, in the instance that Jason's describing here, you, uh, you, you put a person in the car, and you know that the closer hospital, at least there's a doctor there, But the further hospitals more suited to what's going, and then do you even know what's going on? And I think many people can recognize the signs of a stroke, and this would be a classic incidence of there's enough time to do this, and we should have. And it's a, it's a very bitter pill when someone's lost use of their 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 faculties or maybe lost their life, or is more severely um, impacted than they had to be to, to say we should have. And so, but then there's still that balance. And I think that this is going to be one of those ones that I have Doc Bones listed to, and maybe we put our heads together uh, over some downtime and between uh, Christmas and New Year's a little bit and try to figure out how to formalize this a little bit, because it's something I never really thought of deeply. Um, you know, I just, as soon as he said that, this, like, as soon as I understood where this was going, I thought of this little hospital that's like seven, eight minutes from my house. And if you're having, you know, basic problems that are life threatening, they would save your life and it would be good to go there. But a stroke, I can just about bet that they wouldn't have the advanced treatments that Jason was talking about here. And if I was having a stroke and I would be, taking a little bit more risk to go to one of the better hospitals nearby, but have a better chance of regaining my, my mental abilities and be able to go on with my life and continue to do what I'm doing, I would want to take that risk. But which one would be best? Which is closest other than the one that we've always said, well, that's the closest hospital. 
And what are they really good at there? What might they have there that is advanced that we would be make? I, I, you know, this is something that seems like it needs to be, you know, how do you identify these, these, these things that are life threatening or life altering, uh, accurately and quickly and make that determination as fast as possible. And it's something that a decision needs to be made in, in, you know, a matter of seconds to minutes. And, and that knowledge that, yeah, if you call 911, you're going to that closest hospital. Even if it's not best suited for your condition, that's that's kind of important to know. Jason, thank you, and I'm sorry that the lesson came at, with such consequences for your family. Uh, but I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you calling that in and sharing that because I believe that is either going to save lives or save quality of life in the long run. Thank you, Jason. Let's take the next one. We have a question now on the fall of Rome. Hey, Jack. Love the show and love all you do. I was wondering if you see any comparison between the fall of the Roman Empire and our society here, and secondly, if you think that it's an accurate comparison, since it seems that times have changed so much, keep the good work. Well, if you, I don't know, sell survival supplies or gold for a living, then saying the U.S. is the next Rome is... Uh, a pretty good method of advertising and, and fear-based marketing to sell your products and wares with. But I, I think the parallels, while there are a few, are, are, are so misunderstood, and I think it's so short-sighted to say that the U.S. is, is the Rome of the modern day and will have a, a Rome-like fall. I mean, the first thing you have to understand about the fall of Rome is when, when people are talking about preparing for economic collapse or societal collapse in the United States, They, they don't think of it taking, you know, longer than our countries existed for it to totally happen. But that's the case with Rome. Rome fell over hundreds of years, uh, bifurcating into two empires, uh, and then crumbling here and there and what have you. Um, Rome was, and they'll say this is another technological or another example of, Uh, the parallel between the United States and Rome. Rome was the most technologically advanced society in, in the world at the time, in many ways. They had things that no other society was capable of building. For instance, aqua ducts and things like that. And certainly not capable to build them on the scale and the scope that Rome did. So one of the things that people forget about Rome falling, Rome didn't just collapse. Rome was torn apart as this giant empire, as the barbarians, you know, sacked the gates and took pieces and parts of, of Rome. Well, when they did it, part of why Rome completely crumbled in the end, part of why you have these ruins everywhere, is the people that sacked the cities, the towns, the territories and took over didn't know how to maintain the technology. Didn't know what to do with it. Didn't know how it worked. Well... If the, if the United States were successfully invaded, and, and good luck with that, but if it were, um, the nations that would do it know how to run our power plants. They, they know how to run streets and roads, and it, the, the world is a lot more advanced today. So that's, that's one of the things that I think people don't get is Rome and, and, and societies as a whole collapsed because all the infrastructure they had become dependent upon completely crumbled because no one knew how to fix it or rebuild it or maintain it or even use it. And the new people that took over. And I don't see us being, you know, having California taken away, for instance, but the rest of us being here. I don't see our country splitting into two empires, East and West America, and still having empire extension throughout the world and things like that. It just, 
it, it, it's not the same thing. We have, you know, a southern and a northern border where we have relatively friendly relations despite some of the problems that come across the southern border in, in the form of illegal immigration. We still have a pretty good relationship with Mexico. We don't have Canada and Mexico breathing down our backs trying to kill us, and we don't have anybody else kind of from a land attachment ready to come in and take what we have. Um, what you could see that would be Rome-like is the collapse of American influence in the, the rest of the world. And, and I don't necessarily think that that would be a terrible thing, other than it might economically, for a period of time, be a pretty awful thing. But um, from a standpoint of moral and ethics, maybe we shouldn't be the world's police superpower. Um, there are parallels, but the world is different. And an economic collapse in the United States would be... If this, if this nation has an economic collapse, so does the world. Now, I'm not saying that can't change in, in, over a longer period of time, but right now, before you can have a U.S. economic collapse, without it being a global economic collapse, you have to have a lot of things change, and therefore the rest of the world doesn't want a U.S. economic collapse. Now, we have yahoos and enemies out there that want to see us gone under any circumstance. We have people that will blow themselves up in the name of Allah, etc. And those are well, not who I'm talking about. The people that actually run countries know that they can't afford a U.S. economic... Run countries big enough to do it know they can't afford a U.S. economic collapse. China certainly does. Russia certainly does. Russia has no interest in war with the United States. China has no interest in war with the United States. It is in their self-interest to not have war with the United States. So we don't have the war threat that Russia did, unless we, or I mean Rome did, unless we irritate and agitate to make it happen. And we are stupid enough at times to possibly do it, but in the end I think that we still have that kind of mutually assured destruction thing going on. A U.S. economic collapse is more likely to be a, a rather short-term event as they then remonetize the currency system into something new. And when I say that, I think people think, well, Jack's saying it won't be that bad. Well, I'm saying it won't be the end of the world as we know it forever. It'll be the end of the world as we know it for a lot of people for a long time, though. And it, it's, it's a question of exactly how are we going to extricate ourselves from the evolving technology and the evolving global reality. And, and, and one way or another, there's going to be pain. The, the question is how much and for how long. And if we're willing to take more pain faster, it will have a shorter duration. This is kind of like one of those things where it can hurt really bad for a little while, or it can hurt a lot for a long time. Kind of like you pull the band-aid off slower fast. In this case, it's worse than either one option, but it's an analogy to understand. And, and there's some things that we could do relatively quickly that our extrication process might be a decade. That sounds like a long time, but it's better than three or four, which could be the alternative. And it could be as short as maybe five years. The, the, the problem is we're so deeply entrenched in the current paradigm that the shift that the shift that has to take place is a monetary shift the policy the monetary policy itself and not just what we do with the money how we create the money how we manage the money how we control the money um, either an evolution into a, a fully privatized currency market 
or if it's going to be a government currency market, the concept that money is debt has got to change. And the pain that's going to have is, is, is monstrous. But it's the only, like, you know that looming $130 trillion of unfunded liabilities out there? That's $130 trillion worth of shit we're already committed to pay for that we know we're not going to be able to pay for between now and 2050. The only way to make that go away, the only way to make that go away is a change in monetary policy from the core of, of mo money itself. And when you factor in the technological innovations that are coming, the way, so one of the things that Rome had was the middle class in Rome was decimated by cheap foreign labor as the empire expanded. Here is a parallel. As the empire expanded, they were able to use people at the edges of the empire to do certain things and they had enough transportation to be able to move goods and services without having the higher paid Roman citizens do those things. Well, that that that's you know outsourcing jobs. It's so we think it's a new thing. The danger in the next 20 years isn't the jobs going to China, but the jobs being done by machines. And then there's this redneck, hippie, anarchist duck farmer that told you guys all the way back in 2008 and 2009, during that recession, the problem is not that these jobs are leaving, that they're going away, so they're not coming back. And that's exactly what happened. A lot of jobs that people think went to China, that went to India, that went to Mexico, um, they did. Those jobs left in the, in the, the 90s and then early 2000s because of NAFTA, uh, by and large, the ones that went to Mexico. And, and a lot of them then went to call centers in India and things like that as well. But we kind of, until 2008, and the come to Jesus meeting with the, 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 the mortgage meltdown and what have you, kind of got away because these other jobs were created in techno the technology sector and the dot-com boom and all these other things, you know. And when and we had a lot of money flowing and the corporations grew, and what happens in big companies when money is prevalent and it's available, managers ask for new people in their department and things like that, and departments grow. And eventually if enough departments grow, then you need a department to run the departments. This is not limited to bureaucracy. It's contained more than a bureaucracy, but corporations become micro-bureaucracies. Anybody that's ever worked in a company with more than a couple hundred people in it knows exactly what I'm talking about. So when these companies had this come-to-Jesus meeting with, the, with reality in 2008-2009, a lot of the jobs they eliminated, they didn't send them anywhere. They, they leaned out the company, and then the jobs are gone. Well, that's going to happen again. Oh, instead, of, instead of happening over six months, six to 18 months like it did during the Great Recession, it's going to happen over 10 to 20 years. But it's going to be a cascading effect. And that's a bigger threat. See, that's nothing, nothing like that happened in Rome. Rome didn't technologically make its middle class irrelevant. We're going to. This is a totally different world. And as for what to do about it, stay adaptable and look for the opportunities, because the opportunities will be there. The people that are going to be hurt the most over these next two decades are not entrepreneurs. They're not small farmers. They're not craftsmen. 
There are people that are, 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 are conditioned to, I have to go to Tom and ask Tom for a job, and Tom says yes, and I get a job, and I go to a desk, or I go to a workstation, or I go to a factory floor spot, and I do my job for eight hours, and I punch my clock, and I go home. And that's both in government and in the private sector. People like that, with no other options, half of them will be okay. Then there's the other half. Fall of Rome? No. This is the evolution of uh, of humanity is what we're going to go through. And evolution is pain. Evolution is painful at times. Evolving is painful. Growth hurts. That's why they call them growing pains. What society is going to have is some of the biggest growing pains it's ever had in the next few decades. Growth, we always think of as good, but sometimes growth is not necessarily more of something. It's evolution. That's what we're really dealing with. Let's take another one. I know it was long, but that's that's where we're at. We're not in the Rome world. That's just what G. Gordon Liddy tells you so that you'll uh, buy gold. Just saying. Hey, Jack. This is Bob from Eastern PA. Uh, I have a gun question for you today. My daughter's 14. She's been shooting archery left-handed. She is also left-eye dominant and is now starting to shoot 22s. Um, at this point, she cannot shoot right-handed correctly. My question is, is it better to get a left-handed rifle for a left-handed, left-eyed shooter and reinforce that she's just going to shoot lefty and then carry that through, or is there a way to train her to effectively shoot right-handed, even though that's not her instinct, so she can shoot the guns that I already own and the guns that are readily available to buy? Um, at this point, I'm only to get bolt actions, but it seems like a lefty shooting a right-handed semi-auto, like a 10-22, would have trouble with the shells ejecting. Anyway, I appreciate your thoughts. Thanks, Jack. Have a good day. Okay, so the, the way I put this in the intro segment and the way I put it on the blog is, uh, in the notes, is the, the I-dominance question again, and the answer will never change. And I don't mean to sound like I'm picking on the caller, because I'm not. Um, because who knows, maybe he's a new listener and hasn't heard me answer this question before. But if you are left-eye dominant, you are a left-handed shooter. The end, the end, the end. And it's great that she's already shooting archery that way, and she's not going to be sitting there with a gun uh, in her right hand trying to stick her head across the wrong way with cross-eye and a scope and get smacked in the face. And, I mean, I, I've seen so many people, adults, doing that. You're like, what are you doing? Well, I can't see with this. I only shoot with the wrong hand. When you go into the, the the military, and specifically I'm speaking here as an ex-Army soldier, but I, I know the Marine Corps, and I, I'm sure the other services do the same thing, but as far as I'm concerned, the the largest group of, of fine riflemen in the world are made up of, of prior service Army and Marine Corps riflemen. And I think most of them, and the Marines will tell you they're better. And I'll tell you what, to be fair, their qualification is more difficult. Doesn't necessarily mean they're be they're better, but they're qualified. I'd say their lowest level performer is better than the Army's lowest level performer. But I think the, the collectively the group is outstanding riflemen. And the first thing that happens when you go through BRM, I don't know what they call it in in the Marine Corps, but when Army we call it BRM, Basic Rifle Marksmanship, is a a drill sergeant 
gives you an eye dominance test and determines whether you like it or not what your dominant eye is. And after that's done, you are shooting with that eye and those hands. I don't care if you've been right-handed since birth. If you're a left-eye dominant, you are a left-eye dominant, left-handed shooter. And back in my day, uh, even though the Army had moved to the M16A2 platform, Uh, Three-round burst versus full auto. I never saw one until I was uh, out of school and in uh, my permanent duty station. Uh, we had the old A1s. I mean, old busted-ass Vietnam-era A1s like you saw Forrest Gump running around with the old-style handguards and everything. And uh, I guess there weren't they weren't ever made in left-handed or uh, I don't know. Um, but they didn't have a little shell blocker. So if you were shooting one and you were left-handed, you get hit in the face with the brass. And they had this little plastic dumaflogy that snapped up underneath the carrying handle called the brass deflector, and it kept you from getting hit in the face if you were a left-handed shooter. You know, So, I mean, this is not an unusual problem. But my point is the people that teach the best riflemen, the people that teach people that if you don't shoot well, you end up dead, make you shoot with your, your dominant eye. All right, so... That's what we're going to do. And that's what I mean by the answer will never change. Not if you're asking me the question anyway. And there are people who have very good vision in both eyes. And it's difficult to even truly determine, but you always can, which eye is the dominant eye. Those people can usually shoot with their non-dominant eye, but they'll always shoot better with their dominant eye. Okay? Because form... We can always learn form left-handed. Our vision, the, whatever eye has that dominant vision, that's something we can't alter. All right, so we're going to shoot that way. The good news, there's no reason she can't shoot a 10-22 left-handed. Plenty of people do it all the time. That's why I don't think they even make a left-handed version that ejects out the other side. Um, unlike shooting something like a uh, an AR where you have your nose all the way up on the charging handle, and yeah, that's the way you're supposed to do it. Your nose should be touching the charging handle. Um, and and the, you're, you've got that shell ejecting right in your face. You've got your cheek weld back on the stock. And the way a 1022 ejects, um, you might get a little gas in the, the nose or so, or the, the eyes a little bit once in a while, but you should be wearing eye protection anyway uh, whenever you shoot a firearm. Uh, you might occasionally have a piece of brass land on your on your right arm when you've got that right arm out uh, holding the the front of the weapon, but it's no big deal. Uh, my wife has a Model 60 Marlin uh, semi-auto 22, which is Marlin's counterpoint to the 1022. Except instead of being magazine fed, it has a tubular magazine. You pull this rod out and you pop like 18 shells in and then you push it down and turn it. It is like, I think it's actually the second most popular rifle behind the 1022 of all rifles in the world. It sold some stupid thing like 140 million of them or something ridiculous like that. They're inexpensive. She's, she's left eye dominant. She's right handed, but left eye dominant. She's a left handed shooter. She's damn good when you get her to shoot and she shoots it all the time or she used to all shoot it all the time. Never had a problem. So, Bolt actions, I think it's nice if you can afford it and if the option's available for a left-handed shooter to have a left-handed bolt and to be able to work a bolt gun from the left-handed side and have that shell eject and what have you. However, I've never seen a left-handed shooter who can't learn to work a right-handed bolt 
just fine. And maybe their follow-up shots aren't quite as fast as an equivalent uh, skilled right-handed shooter, but it's more than adequate. If you're looking for a high, high rate of fire, you ain't looking for a semi-auto anyway. Um, I don't know how it works with lever guns. I've never seen it really be a problem, but then again, I, I'm right-handed, so I, I guess it depends. Uh, my 1895 ejects out the, the right side, and it's hard for me to even get. I'm so blind in my left eye, it's hard for me to even pretend I'm shooting left-handed, but I just feel like if I was shooting that gun left-handed and I ejected it, I would just see that shell fly over my right arm, and I don't, I don't see myself getting hit in the face with it or anything. It's far enough forward on the, on the breach that you're not going to have a problem. I think it's really not a problem. I think that the limitations of her shooting a right-handed gun left-handed are less than the limitations on her ability if you try to make her shoot right-handed. Just don't do it. Don't do it. It's always going to be the same answer. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Tim calling from Washington, D.C. Long-time listener, first-time subscriber. So I had a question on your take on what can veterans do to prepare themselves, especially as they're transitioning off of active duty. I'm a veteran myself, and I've been out of active duty for about five years and doing quite well with my current job. But I do mentor veterans on LinkedIn, especially with them transitioning out, short-term and long-term, 20-year-plus retirees. And the problem that they're usually facing is that they're completely unprepared for what the civilian world has held them. Some of it is, of course, is that they haven't been trained for jobs outside of the military, and then they're operating on the assumption is that everything is going to be wine and roses for them getting out. Sometimes it happens, most often it don't. Anyways, I just wanted to get your take on that, and if you had any advice for them. Thanks. Well, I actually want to put this into to three groups. One, officers enlisted that did short-term enlistments that are getting out without a retirement. Um, you're talking less than 10 years or, or maybe, maybe any length of time less, less than a full retirement because they don't have that money coming in. They don't have that full health insurance. They don't have PX assets and all that other stuff. Um, and then you have retiring enlisted and retiring officers. And many of your officers that are retiring, they have a different problem I'll talk about briefly. I don't personally know it, but I have seen it. So let's start out with your, your guys that do four years, six years, three years like me, whatever, and get out. Okay. The big problem we have is that we think that somebody's going to give a shit. And I can tell you when I got out, I was very proud of my military service. I had a good service record. Um, I did well at everything that I did from, from shooting guns to turning wrenches. Uh, to the schools I went to, like like combat lifesaver training and 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 jungle school, and uh, I guess that really doesn't translate. But we had a lot of other schools, and I had all these little army diplomas and little awards for getting a perfect, you know, uh, go on my my stuff. And when you test in the army, there's no A or B or C. There's go and no go. And if you get a certain number of no goes, and of course you just fail it. And I had all these things of being perfect, everything I did. And I put my resume together and I beefed it up with all this shit and I'd go in and I'd go into a job interview for some low level puke ass shit like phones, you know, f customer service on phones. And I'd have this folder with all this shit and no one cared. You know, I advanced pretty quickly. Uh, and I had experience leading men, training men, 
uh, setting training schedules and things like No one gave a shit because it wasn't in the, the civilian sector. And I had no relevant experience to the jobs I was trying to get. And I think that people that come out, and especially if you don't want to do what your job was, if there's no civilian analog to your job, all that management stuff and all matters, but it don't mean anywhere near as much as you think it does. And that's a difficult hill to climb. The enlisted people that are coming out with a retirement, you have the same problem, but you don't have the same problem because you have 50% of your pay being deposited in your bank account, at least for now. I know they're talking about changing how this all works, but for now anyway, you, you have that full you know, 20 year or more military retirement. You've got that paycheck and you've got one of the biggest expenses that people have in their lives taken care of because instead of just having VA healthcare, you got full boat VA healthcare, right? Which it ain't the best, but it's there and the expense isn't there if you're in good health. Um, or if you're, you're getting a, a medical retirement that's like that, you've got that paycheck coming in. So you have the same hurdles, but you don't have the same pressing need for a job. You're not trying to live on $210 a week of unemployment that's going to run out in, in a six months to a year. You, 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 you're not living large, but you can, you can eat every day. And you know you can eat every day. So there's a little less pressure. Plus you have more time in, 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 in the service. So employers tend to actually look at that with a little bit more of, oh, this one just a guy that joined the army for a few years because he didn't know what to do with himself. So, it depends. And then you got the short termers that got their, you know, their college fund and GI Bill and whatever are going to college. It's a different world. I'll leave that out because I didn't do that and I don't know about that. Then, then the last is your long term officers. And in some, some instances, unless they've lined up some type of GS employment or something like that through connections, these guys can actually get hit really hard. Now they got, they got a lot more money coming in, but they've been living better lifestyles. So it's still, you know, half or whatever of their pay after how many years. But these guys that come out that were colonels and, and like one stars and two star generals and things like that, these guys are actually a lot of times in for a rude awakening because they've been having their ass kissed for the last half of their career. They're like rock stars. Everybody cares what they have to say, right? Everybody stands and salutes them. Everybody's afraid of them. And, and you get out and like, I was a, I was a full bird colonel in the, in, the, in the Marine Corps or the Army or the Air Force, whatever. Yeah, I don't give a shit. I don't care. You have no powers here. It's almost like, you know, like you watch science fiction and a superhero being stripped of their powers. Like, no one cares. The, an employer might care about your skill set. People might honor your service. But all of the things that people are used to, like, getting their, again, getting your ass kicked, having the world move because you said so, goes away. And I think each of those groups has their own struggles coming back in. Um, I've, I've had, in, for instance, one time a uh, Special Forces uh, retired colonel that wanted to be on the Survival Podcast and uh, was starting up some school or something like that. And I said, that's great. You fill out the form and we'll have you on. And he got a big case of the red ass that he had to go through my procedure to be on my show. And he sent me this long letter about all these things he did. And I, I'm sorry, I don't care. It doesn't matter. Not when it comes to this. That you want to be on the show. I want to make sure that I ask you the right questions. I want to make sure that you understand what, what, what the show's about. I want to make sure that you fit in. I want to make sure we have a good interview. And I get and you get what you want out of it. And then he went and did it and then came back like in a half hour after he sent it in and said, I don't want to be on. I don't want to be talked to like this. Okay. 
you're going to have a tough life, dude. No one cares. No one cares that you were a colonel. You know, not in that way. Again, thank you for your service, your commitment to our country, and, and the skill set you do have. That's all great. But when it comes to throwing your weight around, I think all those groups have a little bit of that chip. And just the higher you've gone, the more that the bigger that chip is and the bigger the disappointment is. It took me about two months to realize, okay, that's a nice little line item on my resume, but nobody really cares. i got to go sell myself into a job. And for instance... I walk into uh, Starbucks quite a few years ago. I was still living in Arlington. I was doing the show and uh, ordered a latte from this guy. And, uh, you know, I was quite a bit younger than I am now, eight years ago, right? Seven years ago, something like that. Uh, I had my beard all nicely trimmed up and all. I'm wearing this Army cap that I wear from time to time. And he goes, oh, are you in the Army? And uh, this guy behind the, the bar, you know, my barista is asking me about this. And I, yeah, you know, I was in the Army. And he's like, hey, you, you retired now? And I'm like, no. Well, I only did three years, and that was back in, the, in 89, 93, almost four years, you know. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've been – he says, oh, you still have that look. And I'm like, oh, okay. He goes, yeah, I just got out of the Navy. And this guy looked pretty young to me. And I'm like, really? He goes, yeah, I retired from the Navy. He retired from the Navy, 20 years, full retirement, working at Starbucks. So – It kind of got slow, and I, so I'm standing here talking to him. I realize I'm not interrupting from doing his job or whatever. And I said, well, what made you come work here? He goes, I needed something to do. And I could get this job in five minutes, so I took it. And I got some money coming in, but I needed something to do, and I got to figure out what I want to do now, so I'm working here. I want to tell you, some people would look at that and go, oh, what the hell? You know, and I, I can't remember what his job was, but it was actually a fairly technical job. Uh, and he had retired, I think, as a, I don't remember what you call it, Chief Petty, whatever, but he was an E-8, uh, which would be like a master sergeant in the, uh, or a first sergeant, depending on your duty station in the, in the Army. And, uh, you know, to go from that to working at Starbucks, but he's probably not got a real hard time in life right now, I would imagine. And I think that's one of the things you have to be willing to do when you get out of the military is do something. Get a job. If you if you if you're not retired, you don't want to go live on your horse ranch or whatever. If you're going to have a career, get a job, anything. And I don't care what you were. Like again, I don't care if you were a colonel or a general or what have you. I know you have a decent retirement at that point, but unless you're going to go sit back and do nothing, you know, find a decent job. My my grandfather retired at 30 years as a CW4, a chief warrant officer four out of the army. He went in as a private, served through World War II, and stayed all the way for 30 years. And I believe his first job was basically as a typist. But he did really well for himself after that. And I remember kind of in his, his second retirement, he was chief of security for Jacksonville University. And he was basically driving around in a car on this little college campus that wasn't much at the time and, and just making sure doors were locked and stuff like that. Um And at that point, he didn't really need to work. He had two retirements, a military retirement, a civilian retirement uh, from his own investments and all coming in. And he, he said, I needed something to do. And I think maybe that's one of the biggest challenges you have when you come out of the military is, is finding something to do. So whether it's taking a long walk on the Appalachian Trail or taking whatever job you can get, find something to do. That's that's the And, and try to know what you're going to do because I didn't. And I think it's part of why I ended up on that long trail walk. I walked from, for those that are new to the show, uh, in, in 93 when I got out, I, I didn't fit in. I didn't know what I wanted to do. 
So I took a walk from, from, from Pennsylvania to New Hampshire. And uh, at that point, figured I didn't want to go back to Pennsylvania, so I moved to Texas. But when I got here, I didn't. That's when I started this whole, you know, put my packet together and I'm going to get a job. and People are going to love me. And no one cared. What have you been doing? I remember the first time I had an interview. I don't go along on this one, too. But I want you, if you're, if you're going to be in this position, I want you to be prepared for this. I went for an interview for a job. I said, no experience necessary. Well, that's great because I have some experience in some things, but not this. But surely this all matters. And I'd been in Texas for about two months. I'd been out of the Army for about five, almost six months now. And the guy says, well, what have you been doing since you got out of the Army? And I you know, told him about this trail walk and all. He kind of thought that was a little bit cool. And I've been in Texas for uh, a few months now. And, well, what have you been doing? I said, well, I got a job busting tires at a Firestone. I really don't enjoy doing that. So, so you, you haven't been doing anything. It was like he was... Like you know, you work part time at Firestone, breaking tires down. Yeah, you, know, you, you took three months to walk in the woods. Like, what have you been doing? And it was uh, it was kind of a gut punch. Didn't really want the job anyway in the end, but it it made me kind of recalculate what I was doing and get very very aggressive in finding a job, a job. My first job, you know, after that. I was making $5.90 an hour packing boxes in a warehouse. But four months later, I was on my way in the field of telecommunications through connections I had made, and I was working as a contractor traveling around for MCI. And I don't think I would have got there if I didn't take that job that I didn't really want. So maybe a little micro uh, sweat pledge would be a good thing for those guys as well that we talked about earlier this week. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, Woody from Virginia. Um, you uh, said you might be trying to feed Steve Harris a couple of questions here to see if he get his uh, blood pressure up just a little bit. Um, I have a couple here that uh, might do the trick. Uh, question number one, I got a 24-volt battery system with two 12-volt batteries connected in series. Can I hook up my 12-volt inverter after the first battery but before the second one? Um, also, number two, I got a single 250-watt solar panel. Should I wire it in parallel or series to my charge controller? And number three, I got some Optima deep cycle slash starting batteries uh, from off-grid system. I have them mounted horizontally on the wall. At a safe in space, if I mount them upside down on the ceiling, do they change from a positive 12-volt output to a negative 12-volt output because they're upside down? <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. Um, thanks a lot show, Jack. Bye. Okay, that's the new rule. No taunting the Harris. And if, if you heard any of those and didn't quite get the joke, go listen to him again and work out what's going on. Uh, but uh, I'll let Steve know about this. He has a pretty good sense of humor. I'm sure he'll get a good laugh out of it. No taunting the Harris. Uh, next question is about cedar mulch. Let's go ahead and take a listen. Hi, Jack. This is Jason from the mythical state of Jefferson. Wanted to know if it would be safe to use mulch from cedar branches and needles in my garden and around my um, newly planted fruit trees. Um, background, I just dropped several large fir, pine, and cedar trees on my property to be used for building a log home this year. And I hired a crew to come up and chip all the slash for me. Um, I was told by several up here not to use the cedar mulch uh, for 
any intended plantings as it would be, um, apparently it kills a lot of things up here. Anyway, um, I separated the cedar slash from everything else just in case, but, um, wanted to get your thoughts on that. Um, just to be more specific, we're talking about Western red cedar and incense cedar, which, um, may be the same thing. Thanks. Appreciate it. No, it'll kill everything. It's allopathic. No, it's not. Um, cedar mulch is fine as a garden mulch. It's not the best, but it's certainly fine. It's best used around established perennials, and when you're putting mulch around established perennials like trees and shrubs and whatever, you don't want it up against the trunk anyway. You actually, what most people do when they mulch a tree is they put it really thick at the trunk of the tree, and then they go out and taper down to a thin layer as they kind of go out to an island. It's backwards. It should be thicker on the outer edge and taper down to almost nothing under the tree itself, no matter what kind of mulch you're using. Um, now, there is something called sour mulch, I think is a term that they use for it. Basically, it's anaerobic. If you have it in a big pile and it gets wet and it, it has pockets in it that are anaerobic, it can produce, especially cedar, can produce something called acetic acid. And acetic acid on your plants is bad juju and it makes them sick and pale and yellow and unhappy and sometimes die. So if, you, if your mulch has any stink or sour smell to it, uh, that portion or all of it, depending on what's happened to it, needs to not be used or needs to be spread out and let to completely dry and become aerobic once again. And it's still not a good idea at that point. But assuming it's fresh cedar mulch and you don't pile it up against the plants at all, you can use it for just about anything. As for like vegetable plantings and stuff like that, I really don't recommend it because it lasts too long. It doesn't break down. And, and since it doesn't break down, it, it takes a lot longer to contribute anything to the soil. And people say, well, you can't use wood mulch for your vegetables. It robs nitrogen from the Oh, my head hurts. But there is a little truth to it. It does take some nitrogen, especially where it makes contact with the soil. But then it begins to break down almost immediately. It's bonding with that nitrogen. It's carbon bonding with nitrogen. And when carbon and nitrogen bond together, you get a breakdown. The fungal breakdown begins. You get compost, either a slow or fast, but it's pretty fast even when it's slow, like a year. That's why you have to remulch again every year. Cedar will take that little bit of nitrogen up and hold on to it for a dadgone long time and become... Like cedar, instead of getting all broke down, tends to get more like really light, and airy, and dried out. I remember when I moved to this house, there were some 14 or 12, they were 12 foot long four by fours laying against the back fence. And they were cedar. Do you know how much a four by four, 12 foot four by four of cedar costs? There was like a bunch of them back there. And I was excited until I picked one up. I'm not that strong of a guy. I was able to pick up a 12-foot cedar 4x4 in my one hand, hold it balanced in the middle, and toss it in the air and catch it. That's how light it was, like balsa wood. And it just kind of stays around forever, and it doesn't give back to the soil, so it's not ideal. But it certainly won't hurt anything. So how, do, how does this mythology about it killing stuff happen? Well, one is people get a big old pile of it. It gets all gunked up and stinks to high heaven, sour mulch, and they put it on their plants, and the acetic acid kills them. Oh, the cedar mulch did it. That's one way. Another way is people don't know how to mulch, and you take these little bitty plants, 
and you put like 10 inches of wood mulch around them and surround them with it and crush them with it, and it's just not good. It's too much. Too much of anything is bad. And uh, they have problems with it because of that. It wouldn't matter what kind of mulch it is. They just mulch wrong. Uh, or they, they don't take care of their soil, and they have their shitty, they have shitty soil and shitty plant care, uh, but they put mulch on. So they, instead of figuring out what they did wrong, they blame the mulch. And, and then it just takes one or two people saying something until everybody knows it's true. Uh, but cedar mulch is not allopathic. It absolutely is not. Um, and it, it will not hurt plants in general. It just isn't the best quality mulch. So I would stick to using it, you know, around perennials and woody perennials and, and things like that. I wouldn't use it for my garden, not because it's going to hurt the garden, but because there's better things to do with your garden to improve your soil quality. Hope that makes sense. And anybody that writes me, you don't know cedar, and I'll get it. I, I know sometimes you'll wonder why I even say this shit, but because I, I know I'm going to, I can hear the evil, mean pounding of a keyboard right now. And I've been doing this for 20 years, and you're so stupid, and I'll just delete your email. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. I've got a question for you about whether or not you think it's safe to eat raccoons shot in a suburban area. As background, I live in an, an older neighborhood with larger lots. It's fairly heavily wooded. I will occasionally trap and shoot raccoons as part of a means of protecting my flock. I, I have some ducks and chickens, and I've had an occasional attack or two. Um, so as a result, I will end up dispatching of raccoons every so often. The other day, I, I shot one that was particularly large, and I thought, wow, there must have been a, a good amount of meat on this guy. But I was a little hesitant to clean it out and uh, and put it in my oven, um, primarily as a result of whether or not the um, eating of garbage from my neighbors or drinking out of streams with runoff from lawns, things like that, would possibly have any negative health health consequences. So interested in your thoughts on that and uh, love the show. Keep up the great work. Bye-bye. I, I, I think this is a... Is it dangerous? Is it unsafe? Is it going to make you sick? No. No. Um, though if you don't prepare raccoon, I'm assuming you know how to prepare raccoon, you know about the glands and all uh, to remove. It can be pretty nasty if you don't remove those glands and you end up breaking them and getting them into the other meat or whatever. And raccoon's a unique kind of meat. It's it's not something you just pitch on the barbecue like a steak. But I'm assuming you know how to cook raccoon. Um, there's no reason you can't eat it. Is it going to be the same quality as a raccoon that you caught, you know, back in the sticks uh, with a water set? Uh, no. Is it probably going to be better quality than a steak that you would buy from Albertsons, just regular old USDA grade A beef? Uh, it probably won't taste as good, but it's probably safer in a lot of ways. It's probably got less problems because... Will raccoons break into the garbage and eat garbage? Sure, but what are they going to eat? You know, they're not going to eat tin cans. They're not tiger sharks. Um, they're going to eat food that people threw away, which is food that people eat. Uh, they're, they're not going to eat something that's going to make them sick. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's certain risks with any wild game, uh, and, you know, depending on the species. I mean, raccoon is in a family of animals that carry trichinosis. So we need to make, but it wouldn't matter where we see, that's irrelevant to the situation. Um, 
it, it may be more likely that a, a, a raccoon in a suburban environment with lots of dog crap around and things like that be more likely to pick up pinworms or tapeworm, but any animal anywhere could pick that stuff up. Would I, would I suggest a steady diet of suburban raccoon? No. Would I say that if you're a person that pops six or eight of them a year and feels like you're wasting the meat by throwing it away and you like to eat them, would there be any harm in eating it? No. No. Um, especially if you're not, like, if you're right now living on, you know, grass-fed, beyond organic beef and pastured poultry and you never buy anything from the regular grocery store, Well, maybe, you know, you would, you would alter your paradigm or something. But if, if you're eating any food out of the mainstream food system, you're probably no worse off. Um, I have actually eaten quite a bit of raccoon. I ate quite a few of them in Arkansas because we had our scotch infused, uh, raccoon murder sessions. Um, but I won't say that we ate every single one or I ate it because my wife won't even think about it. Um, not the, not the tastiest meat in my opinion, not terrible, you know, but it's, it's some work to prepare and you only get so much out of it. Um, but when I was a, a young teen and I ran a trap line, um, every single one of them was taken for meat because we needed, we needed meat. We needed money and money, meat was, was, was money you didn't have to spend. So you go trap a raccoon and get 10, 15 bucks for a pelt Plus, get enough meat off of it that you know you, you're not spending ten, fifteen bucks. So that raccoon is now worth thirty dollars. Whether you'd spend that much money on it or not, it was displacing the expense, and uh, we got creative with it a bit. So, um, and I did trap not just out in the middle of nowhere. I did trap quite a bit actually, just due to travel time limitations, closer to home and all. I would say there was less of the. Uh, the garbage rating going on just because of the way people handled things there. But uh, you wanted the truth? Well, that raccoon's probably eating more than anything else that's getting from people. It's people that keep dogs and cats outside and it's eating dog food and cat food. So then you have to make a personal choice if you're wanting to eat that or not because most people don't let their garbage get tore apart over and over again without doing something about it. So as much as, as they get... Uh, You know, uh, the reputation of eating garbage, they can only eat so much, unless there's a lot of dumpsters around and stuff like that. And then, then you got a different, are you in suburbia? Are you in, uh, apartment hell? I mean, those are, you know, they don't have that big of a operational, uh, area. So, you gotta make a personal decision, but it ain't gonna kill you and it's not gonna make you sick. Uh, it's gonna be no worse for you than eating food out of the grocery store, in my opinion, from the mainstream food system. Probably better. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. My name is Taryn. I listen at work where I'm a lab analyst in an environmental lab. I enjoy having a little something to think about during the more mundane parts of my job. And I've been concerned recently with uh, drugs, all sorts of genuinely needed uh, medications, not just interfering with creativity as in the case of ADHD meds, um, but mental alertness and entire generations of kids on allergy meds and entire generations of our um, our baby boomers on all sorts of other meds. I, I'm really starting to notice some um, some problems with the general population. What does Dr. Bones think? 
Well, I, I think I'm going to have Bones. I mean, you threw that right there at the end uh, at me. I uh, you know, wonder what Bo Dr. Bones thinks. Um, just a real quick refresher here, though. If you want to ask questions for the expert counsel, it is better not to call them in. I, I prefer that you email those questions to me, Jack, at the survivalpodcast.com. Put TSP expert in the subject line. Uh, tell me in the body of your email who the question is for, which, you know, for Brian Black, from ITS Tactical, from you know, Tim Glantz, for, you know, whoever, Ben Falk, uh, Nick Ferguson, uh, Doc Bones. And then give me your question and then fill in the details. So I, I would prefer it that way, but this is interesting. So I'm going to give you my take on this, and I'd be interested to hear Doc Bones' take on this. Um, I think his will be more conservative toward the benefit of medication than, than, than mine. Mine might be a little more anti-mainstream medicine, as you might imagine. However, I, I bet we'll have some pretty similar thoughts here. Now, here's, here's how I feel, first of all. The modern medicine has saved a lot of lives. And there are a lot of people who either their quality life or their duration of life are better because of modern medications that are available today. I say that because now I'm going to give you what Paul Harvey used to call the rest of the story, right? So instead of picking on one medication or one medication group or all of the stupid commercials where, you know, an antidepressant has one of the side effects of suicidal thoughts. Let's let it go for a second. Let's examine the industry as a whole and what industry does in a capitalistic market. Right? This is not the evils of capitalism because most of you know I'm an anarcho-capitalist. But it is, there's a fundamental truth to how capitalist markets work, especially in a regulated system and the, the, the current rigged system that we live in. So we don't have pure capitalism. So this is, this is uh, neo-fascist capitalism. This is how this is going to work. So the drug companies make drugs. And for a company to be successful in our system, it must sell more this year than last year. In, in, in revenue, in units, however you want to measure it, it has to make more money every year. If it doesn't make more money, investor dollars go to other companies who are making more money. So, what does the drug company's chief business become? It is not innovating and finding the best medicines that cure diseases. It is making marketable products that can be sold in greater numbers this year than last year. Okay. So how does how do the drug manufacturers go about doing that? What is their what is their primary way by which they ensure that they meet their sales quotas? Well, they do two primary things. They advertise direct to the consumer, that's you and me, and that's why if you watch Fox News, every third commercial is a drug commercial with some stupid name like Entresto and you don't think you don't think that's because it sounds like trust, really? Okay, so you can see the marketing there. And then they employ these people, not all of them, but, but the vast majority are women that could be, you know, models and guys that could be on the cover of GQ. They give them uh, a whole plethora of tools like inviting doctors to golf 
seminars in Hawaii and shit like that. And they send them out to all these medical professionals to say, you should pre prescribe Entresto over Nontresto or whatever, or Nexium, the purple pill, or whatever else. And the, the entire apparatus has become, let's get our drugs prescribed. Okay? With that being the way it works. And then doctors have been conditioned, instead of focusing on overall health, and to be fair, because the patients don't really want to be told how to be healthy, they just want to fix for whatever's hurting me today. But the doctors have been trained, instead of focusing on health, to focus on reaction to disease. And to some level, prevention of disease. But not holistic health. So the doctor is under the general operational mode of patient comes in, patient is assessed, drug is prescribed, or patient is referred to a specialist. Nine times out of ten. Or patient is assessed, patient is given lab work, lab work is assessed, lab work tells us a story, patient is prescribed a medication, or referred to a specialist or higher level of care. Those things together cannot result in anything except the over-prescribing and the over-usage and the over-selling of prescription medications. What that means is no matter how much good goes into some of the intentions of the research and development, some of the doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners and, and, and what have you that prescribe the medications and see to care for the people. And no matter how many people live a longer life because of a certain drug or medication, no matter how much of that is true, there are a whole shitload of people taking medications that do not need to and probably should not. And We are in a society today where most people are on at least two medications. I'm on zero, by the way. I'm on zero. It's not that I never take a medication, but I'm on zero. All of these medications have side effects. And all of these side effects interplay and are cumulative, and they are never tested for it. So... If a, a, a side effect of one medication might be something like impairing clarity of thought, which you won't even hear because it's too nebulous and we don't really, we'll call that a headache, right? But it impairs your ability to think. It makes you a little slower on your feet, so to speak. And this other drug is also known to do that. But they're never tested to see, well, how much is that side effect accentuated when the two are taken at the same time? And we talked to some, and I sold insurance for a very brief period of time in my life. And I remember talking to people in their 50s. I'm not talking about 90s, I'm talking about 50s. And saying, yeah, they want, you want to write up a policy? Great, we'll get your application out and start it. Do you take any medications? Oh, hold on. And bottle after bottle after bottle. And this one is for, uh, uh, you know, pancreatitis that I, and they're not sure why I have it, but the, okay, so you said you didn't have any medication, pancreatitis, and, and then the medication. Okay, well, what's this one? Well, this one makes me a little nauseous when I take it. So this one's for the nausea that this one causes. Okay, and then you get the pill bottle and write the mile long name out for it because you don't put down Entresto, you put down the medical actual name of the drug. And well, what's this one for? Well, I have a little bit of trouble sleeping, so I take this uh, a couple times a week only so I can sleep. Okay, 
Yeah. And they say it's probably because this causes drowsiness and I take naps in the middle of the day and then I can't. So this is an, and you just keep going and it's like almost every drug that they're taking, they're taking 10 drugs is in some chain related to the first drug. And maybe they need that first drug. I don't know. I'm just saying. This is, now, what is, what does that mean for America? <laughs> There is no way we are at our innovative best. In America today, with as much medication as going into people and affecting their minds, there there is no way we are at our healthiest that we could be. And I don't just mean well, everybody can lose twenty pounds. That's a great start, but there's no way that that our overall health, not just our you know survivability of an illness, but our overall picture of health. I I, I think it's it's a terrible situation to be in. And there is no way in our current system it can come out any other way other than individual choice where people choose not to just pop every pill a doctor says to. And I think that people need to start asking this question every single time a doctor prescribes a medication. How long will I be taking this? And if the answer is, well, for the rest of your life, you need to really find out if it's really necessary. Because what does the drug company want to do? They want to get as many people as possible on medications for the rest of their life. Because it's their fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to do so. And it's effed up. But that's where we are. Now, you can bitch about it, or you can be a responsible individual and say to yourself, since I know that's the case, it's up to me, as the, as the ultimate decider of what does and doesn't go into my body, to decide what I do and do not take. However, we're getting to a position now where you're forced to have insurance, but the insurance says you can't have insurance if you don't take the drug the doctor says you're supposed to have. And you don't think those guys are playing grab ass behind the scenes? Really? Really? And it's only a matter of time the life insurance people are going to get in the mix. Well, your life insurance is no good if you don't take this drug that the doctor says you have to take, and we know that because we're you know, linked to this insurance company that does your health insurance. Well, they're not allowed to share that information. Not yet. Not yet. We're entering the world of deals and compromise, though, folks. So my view is if you need a medication, by all means take it and make informed decisions about that between you and your doctor. But in the end... If it's for the rest of your life and there's an alternative, try the alternative first. Because some of these medications, it's not just they plan on you taking it for the rest of your life. Once you start, it's it's risky and difficult sometimes to get off of it. So really think. And I'll tell you one of the big ones to really think about before you do it is blood pressure medication. Um If nothing else, you have moderate to mild hypertension. And I would tell my mother to take this. To, okay, fine. Then go get yourself a blood pressure cup. Take your blood pressure four or five times a day for a month. If you're not in danger, just dying tomorrow without it. And then go back with all those readings and talk to your doctor again. Because that's exactly what my wife did. And this doctor that was pushing her like hell, you need to be on blood pressure medications. When she looked at that, she goes, well, you don't need to be on blood pressure medications. Oh, great. Oh, just freaking flipping dandy. You know, because doctors, I'm going to tell you something. The average patient you take the blood pressure of probably is going to test 10 points at least higher in your office 
than they are at their home. Because going to the doctors makes people freaking anxious. And when you're anxious, your blood pressure goes up. Do they teach that to you in medical school? Because they should. Yes, I know I'm a redneck hippie anarchist duck farmer and you went to medical school, but I'm telling you the damn truth. I've seen it. I saw an instance one time with my wife where her blood, blood pressure was looked pretty high. Well, she was also having chest pains, which was actually indigestion, but you know that screws with you sometimes and you think it's your heart. And we went to the doctor's office and she tested and her blood pressure was like, I don't know, 140 over something. She's usually like 120 over something. It used to be like 118 or something like that. And the doctor just looks at her and checks her out and goes, well, your blood pressure seems a little high right now, but you're not, you don't have any heart problems here. This is, you're okay. And then checked her blood pressure five minutes later and it was down to where it normally was. Because it was anxiety. Just saying. You have to be responsible for yourself because the medical industry is not. The medical industry I'm not talking about individual doctors and nurses and shit like that right now, or even an individual person that works developing a drug that they think is going to help people. But the industry as a whole sees you as a dollar sign. Realize that and make smart decisions. All right, with that, hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you can get exclusive content available only to members and help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. Uh, to do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more, and you'll see all the great benefits you get, including discounts to over 60 vendors. And if you are military, law enforcement, or a uh, first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service and one or two sentences, and I will get a discount code back to you. But do that when? Before, not after you join. You guys in that world are supposed to be procedural. That is the procedure. Uh, next up, the other way you can support us, and this is the easiest, painless, non-cost, direct-to-you way to do it, is by doing your Amazon shopping. Whenever you're going to go to Amazon, instead of going to Amazon, go to tspaz, T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. And when you get there, you'll see a link. You click on that. You go to Amazon and buy your stuff. And you can also check out our daily reviews. We do a daily review of an Amazon item, uh, an Amazon item that we use in our homes or uh, have worked with in the past or one way or another. Today's something I use all the time. Uh, it's a cooking ingredient. Uh, Thai whole dried chilies by Asia Trendy. I don't know how they do this. You get this thing. It has like a label. It is shipped directly from Thailand, and they're they're cheap. They're They're, you know, like a, a three and a half ounce package is less than four bucks with free shipping right from Thailand. I don't get it, but I get them because I like them. And uh, these things are awesome. These are the real deal. Uh, they are a dried red Thai chili pepper. They're a little bit big, like double the size of like a Tabasco pepper. They're not real big. Uh, they have like a kind of medium heat, um, a lot of heat in the seeds and not much in the pods. You can use them a lot of ways. A lot of people uh, rehydrate them and, and cook them into uh, stir-fries to heat stir-fries up. And if you do that, they lend a nice flavor and seasoning. You can put the dehydrated the water you rehydrated into the stir-fry with them. Uh, and a lot of people, you do that, you can leave them whole and pick them out. Because if you eat them like that, then, yeah, they really will smoke your face. Um And then there's a lot of other ways that they're used. People grind them into chili powder, and I've done both of those things. But my favorite thing to do with them and I've talked about this before, is my famous, and it is famous. It's only famous for people who have tried it, but when people have tried it, it's famous. It's my chili garlic pepper oil. 
And I'm going to give you how to do that right now. Use about one to two dozen of dried chili peppers, depending on how hot you want it to be and how much chili you want in it. I use about two dozen. Uh, about a half a handful or around three, four tablespoons of black peppercorns and uh, one whole garlic bulb with the cloves taken apart and peeled. And if you buy the pre-done cloves, then about 10 to 12 cloves. You throw those all in a saucepan. You put about two cups of peanut oil over it. And you put it on the stove and you turn it on really low heat and you slowly heat it. You want to heat it right to the point where it starts to look like it's going to fry, but it doesn't. You do not want to let it fry. A little bubble start to form. If you have a thermometer, heat it to at least 275 degrees. And then when you get it there, put a towel down on your uh, countertop, take the pot, put it on the towel, put the lid on it, and fold the towel around it so it holds the heat in. Leave it sit for about two hours. It'll cool down slowly over that time and extract all the garlicky and peppery goodness. Take it. Dump it in a blender, a Vitamix, a Nutri-Ninja, I don't care what, and blend the shit out of it. And then pour it through a colander into a jar for storage. It'll make about a pint, two cups, right? And uh, put a lid on it. You can cook with it right away. Keep it in the refrigerator. It stays fresher. There is a risk whenever you use a moist item in an oil infusion of botulism. Because you got oil, you got anaerobic environment, you got botulism spores all over the place. And then you got moisture in the garlic, okay? But if you heat to at least 275 degrees, you can forget about it. You don't have to worry about it. Because why? Because you kill botulism at 250 degrees. Then you're going to use the oil. This is not something you put on a salad, like a salad dressing or whatever. I wouldn't do it anyway. I just don't think it's the right thing. You're going to cook with it. There's no way you're not going to hit 250 degrees on the surface of your food if you're frying or grilling or, or what have you. So I wouldn't really worry about it. That's not why I say to put it in the refrigerator. I do mention it just because, you know, you, you don't want to make this at too low a temperature because that is a, mi a moderate, tiny little bitty risk. So if you're up to 275, you've smoked it. You've cooked most of the water out of it, too, by then. Um, but the reason you store it in your refrigerator, right, the reason you store it and you, you, you put it in the blender and you dump it through a strainer, there's no garlic pulp in there or anything, is it just keeps longer. Oil can get rancid, especially when it's been infused with things. So keep it in the refrigerator. makes a great gift. But my favorite thing to make with it is chicken wings. You make chicken wings with it. And uh, you just... Use a few tablespoons of it, maybe a little more, as much as you need. Put your chicken wings in a bowl. Put this oil on them and, and make sure you give them a good coating with it. And uh, then you can just you know, bake them or grill them like that, and they come out fantastic. Or you can make a rub. And I promised in the write-up today that I would give you a, uh, a recipe uh, for a chicken wing rub, a spicy Asian-themed chicken wing rub, since we're using these Thai chilies, that would blow you away. So here it is. Okay, so into your super duper Mr. Coffee blender, which is really, really your spice grinder, right? Um, you're going to put the following all dehydrated, one teaspoon of each, unless it's not a dehydratable thing. A teaspoon of garlic, a teaspoon of onion, a teaspoon of black pepper. And if you're doing it by the teaspoon, you want a teaspoon of ground at this point because um, the peppercorns, if you're going to do peppercorns, do two. They take up a lot more space before they're ground. Uh, one teaspoon of salt, one teaspoon of sesame seed, one teaspoon of mustard seed, one teaspoon of cumin, and one teaspoon of dehydrated jalapenos. I know what you're thinking. What about the Thai chilies that we're using for the oil? You can do that. It'll be a hot or dry rub and probably hotter than you want. And it's nice to have the two different peppers. They play well together. And then you're going to do two tablespoons of paprika 
and two tablespoons of chili powder and pulse that little friggin' blender gizmo, Mr. Coffee Blender. It's in the write-up. Link to it if you want to see what I'm talking about. The Mr. Coffee Coffee Grinder. Like 13 bucks, you plug it in and push a button and it grinds a little bit of stuff up. I've never ground coffee in mine. Just spices and seasonings. And you get that powder, a fine powder. You get your, your wings and you've tossed them in the oil. Okay? And then you lay them out and dust them. Flip them over and dust them again with this, this, this dry rub. Let it sit. Let it sit. If it's going to, you know, put it in the refrigerator on a, on a single tray and let it sit like that for at least 30 minutes. It's not just for the flavors to melt, but it'll kind of dry and stick really good. And then either your oven, you know, high temperature baker roast or your grill. I prefer to grill them. And now, There might be some oil in the bowl where you toss them with wings. We don't want that. It's raw chicken there. We're going to take some of the oil. We're going to put a little like a little bowl and put some oil in it and get a little brush. When the, when the wings are just about done, we're going to brush them with this oil again and just heat them, you know, kind of cook that oil a little bit into them and crisp it up a little bit. And then we're going to eat them just like that. Or if you want to make it look more Asian-themed, Get those uh, sesame seeds back out and sprinkle them, and they'll stick. Fantastic. Fantastic. Lots of things you can do with this chili garlic oil, but that's a great one. Hope you enjoyed that. Hope I made you hungry. And remember, you can always find out about cool stuff like this at tspaz.com. I'm not a charity. I feel like anything that I ask you to do that puts money in my pocket, I should give you something back like education and knowledge because that's what we do here at the Survival Podcast. We teach and we help you learn to think. That's why when you make these calls for a show like today, you call the think line, not the not think line. Okay, so that brings us to our song of the day. Now, yesterday I teased you a little bit about today's song because I played Incommunicado by Jimmy Buffett. And I said I had a different song picked out. It was just a fun, silly song. Um, and today you're going to get to hear it finally and find out what it is. It's by Jerry Reed. Right? Uh, Jerry Reed is the is, is the guy that uh, wrote the song for Smokey and the Bandit, right? Well, this is a song that I bet a lot of you have heard, and you forgot all about it. And when I tell you about it, you're going to be, oh, yeah, I remember that from, you know, what was it, 1982 or something like that. Um, but... A lot of you will have never heard this song, especially if you didn't listen to country music in the 80s, right? Because this is like, well, say, it actually did pretty well on the charts, if I remember right, but uh, it just kind of came and went. It was just kind of a novelty, but it was funny. It's called The Bird. The Bird. Not the bird middle finger, but actual bird. And it's, it's a, it's a first person story, you know, he's he kind of telling a story with his song. You know, I'm about walking to a bar and there's a guy there with a bird that can sing. And uh, I won't tell you what happens because it's fun to listen to, but um, the bird can sing like Willie Nelson and, uh, and, and George Jones. And it's Jerry singing through the whole thing, and he doesn't sound just like uh, Willie or just like George, but he does a pretty good impression of the two of them in this song. And uh, recently we played the theme from the sting for you a little bit of it because it was a song that was popular in the early 1900s and it was in the history segment. And I'll just say there's a bit of sting going on here and I hope you enjoy it and just have a freaking laugh once in a while. Don't always be so serious with that. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the survival podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Late. 
was at this bar on an interstate when a guy with this bird on his shoulder walked through the door. Yeah. He proceeded to tell me the wildest thing. He said, sir, this bird of mine can sing like no other bird you have ever heard before. Well, I kind of looked at the guy and said, oh, really? He turned to the bird and said, do old Willie. When the bird started singing, I almost fell in the floor. Whiskey River, take my mind. Don't let a memory talk to me. Whiskey River, don't run dry. What a heck of a thing. A man could get rich making that bird sing, and I could feel this wild ear coming on strong. And besides, I'm sitting here with two weeks, babe. I'd probably blow it on beer anyway. Then he said, hey, when did you hear him sing like George Jones? He stopped loving her today. They placed a wreath upon his door. Does it, sir? Yep. I'd like to buy that bird with a $500, take him off your hand, huh? Well, he thought for a while. He said, all right. He handed me the bird. He said, good night. He counted my money and out the door he ran. Well, I was thinking I'd found the rainbows in that the money would suit me for an end. But suddenly the bird just flew out the door and was gone. Well, then it hit me. I got boiling mad. Cause I knew right then that I'd been had And as he flew off into the night He was singing this song On the road again I just can't wait to get on the road again Somebody 